It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years, and Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Today's topic is, Do I Suffer from Rapture Anxiety, Part 2? Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for today's episode? 1 Thessalonians 4.17 Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Coming up in today's episode, and part one of this series, we observed the chaotic dramatics of the rapture teaching. But is it squarely based on Scripture? Does the Bible teach that Jesus comes back with a real trumpet and in an instant raises all faithful dead Christians and then in the next moment raptures all living Christians? True or false? God's plan for humanity is powerful, positive, and proactive, and is built upon the ransom Jesus paid for every man, woman, and child who ever lived. This plan is one of great joy. All scriptural events and prophecies point to the unfolding of this plan. As we observed in part one of this series, the widely held Christian teaching of the rapture, in all of its varied interpretations, does not seem to fall in line with this plan. Instead of hope, it seems to bring distress and chaos. In part one, we began to systematically look at the key elements of the scriptures that this teaching is drawn from. Our objective is to look at these texts in the context of the Bible itself and not the context of our opinions or our church's doctrines. Here in part two, we continue to unfold what we believe God's Word actually teaches. So far, we found that the rapture teaching is quite involved, and it means different things to different people. In part one, we briefly identified some of the main differences having to do with when, how, and why Jesus returns. We talked about terms like pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation millennialism, as well as pre-millennialism and post-millennialism, and there's even pre-tribulational dispensational pre-millennialism, which is a thing. And just know that there's a lot of different viewpoints on this, so we are methodically searching out the truth. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. (laughs) Yes, it is, it is. There's a lot of moving parts there. So let's look at the scriptures in question. Let's look at them as a whole. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In part one, we left off at the trumpet. We will pick up on that again shortly. Let's remember the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians to encourage the brethren as they were newer to Christianity, going through uh, sufferings and trials. And Paul was not able to go and see them, which really you know, got to him. He was sad about that. So he expressed his joy in them. 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 and 13. 
For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? And then he encouraged them by teaching about the future of all the faithful in verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming, parousia, of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That's the background context. So one chapter later, Paul's going to go into the process of reuniting that the true church will experience. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Well, the purpose of this letter is to encourage hope, not to scare with violence and trauma. We have an encouraging letter. Its purpose is to build up, and we want to make sure we understand what Paul is writing in that context as we go through these more difficult verses. So keeping that in mind, Jonathan, let's go to 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 and 15. And this is from the Rotherham version. Jesus died and rose again, so also will God bring forth with him them who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For this unto you do we say by the word of the Lord that we, the living, who are left unto the presence of the Lord, shall in no wise get before them who have fallen asleep. So what you have here is is, is the apostles talking about being left unto the presence of the Lord. That word is often translated coming. The presence of the Lord is a very important factor in understanding the concept of the rapture teaching and scripture, what, it, what it's really teaching. So we wanna, we're going to focus in on this idea of presence in a moment, because here's the thing. Jesus' presence is not a moment in time, but it is a process of time. And it's a matter of fact, it's explained in three phases. And we, we went over this in, in part one of our series. These three phases, they're very important. So Jonathan, let's go through these. What's the first phase? Well, Jesus and Paul both told us that Jesus' presence begins in a thief-like manner. We like to call it in stealth mode. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, the Greek word for parousia is used to describe how Jesus returns. He is present. He is in the house, so to speak. But it is too dark to see he starts to stealthily take away Satan's kingdom. Right, so you've got this thief in the night, this beginning phase. Julie, what's the second phase? Paul speaks of the manifestations of Jesus' return as targets for the faithful to watch for. 1 Timothy 6.14 says that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This appearing in Greek is the Epiphanias phase, and the beginning of the parousia was hidden, but this next phase, here it's detectable. We have visible signs that something is happening. So thief to visible signs, first phase, second phase. Jonathan, what's the third phase? Jesus' return will be finally and fully recognized and disclosed to all of humanity. Luke 17, 26, 27, and 30. In the days of Noah, they were eating, drinking, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Now, revealed is the Greek word for apocalypsis, which signifies revealment, uncovering, unveiling, as of something previously hidden. So these three phases are very important, and we want to understand where different things fit 
in this unfolding of Jesus' return. With this in mind, let's now continue with these verses again. We're recapping some of the things we talked about in, in part one. So Jonathan, let's go to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. We'll really focus in on the first part. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This word for shout means a cry of incitement or a command. But is this a literal shout? And how do we know? Who's he talking to? So the command is something that we looked at in, in part one of the series as a, it's in a spiritual sense. It's in a spiritual sense, and it is for the purpose of the drawing out of the uh, the the dead in Christ first. The, Jesus, uh, it's important to understand that there's different levels of, of the way things happen uh, with his return. Phases mean differences in how things come out. And in other words, this command occurs on a spiritual wavelength we can't hear. There you go. And that helps us to put it in perspective, a spiritual wavelength that we can't hear. So Jesus returns as a thief, and yet we have this shout, this command that is given upon his return and is focused up on gathering his church. That's who would hear it, those he is going to be gathering. This shout or command is something that Jesus himself described in John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Last episode, we talked about how this gives us the big picture about how Jesus triggers or commands the resurrection of all because he died for everyone's sins. So we see that command that everyone will hear his voice and come forth. There's a command. So that's a very general thing, Julia, like you just said. That's the big picture. Well, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul further explains this big picture that Jesus described with an order of events. This is important because in, in John, it sounds like it's all happening all at once. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul helps us understand, no, this is a, a drawn-out process. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming, parousia. We'll talk more about this text coming up. Yeah, that, that's going to be uh, coming back later on. But again, we're still recapping. This command is not a literal earthly shout. Rather, it's a miraculous command to bring the faithful Christians out of death into spiritual life. That's what it is. That's who hears it. This happens while some of the faithful are still alive here on earth. And again, big picture, everyone born from Adam dies because of sin, but because of Jesus, everyone's going to have the opportunity for life in the kingdom. Absolutely. So we want to understand. These are the things, again, in part one, we went into in great detail. We're not taking time to explain a lot here. Back to 1 Thessalonians 4.16, we want to focus in on the next piece. Go ahead, Jonathan. And after the shout, the next piece is with the voice of the archangel. As we will see, this voice of the archangel is similar to the command for the true church to be raised from the dead. This is the voice of God's authority coming through Jesus when he returns. It's not a physical earthly voice, but it's focused on Israel. It commands world's events to open the door for Israel's reestablishment as a sovereign nation to their own land. And we see that prophesied back in Daniel 12.1. Now at that time, Michael, who was like God, 
the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, Israel, will arise, stand. So you have this prophetic view of Michael, the archangel, the voice of God's authority, standing for Israel. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's look at history. Israel's regathering began quietly in the 1800s. In 1878 was when the first Moshava in Israel, called Petitikva, was established. Remember, Moshava was a settlement of independent farmers in Israel who owned and worked their land. It was a miracle. And people do not understand what, a, what an amazing set of events took place for that to even happen. So this has been a recap, folks, of where we were in part one. So Jonathan, our rapture reassessment, what do we have here? Clearly the shout and the actions of the archangel carry high spiritually significance. Their effects are only able to be seen by those whom they directly affect and those who are specifically tuned into their true significance. By transforming these highly spiritual markers into worldly actions, the rapture teaching changes the whole meaning of Paul's teaching in Thessalonians. So we need to be careful what we're looking at and how we're trying to interpret it. Are we interpreting it in, in our own minds to fit a preconceived idea, or are we interpreting things in line with what the scriptures are actually teaching us? So with all of the details that we've just reviewed, it's important to realize that we have thus far just scratched the surface. We have seen the shout and the voice of the archangel of verse 16 are not witnessed by the average human being. What about the trumpet? Who can hear it? Well, for starters, let's acknowledge that it would be a rare occurrence to have a Bible verse show us two spiritual symbols and then have the third one to be a physical one. With this in mind, we also want to realize that, as we've seen, these events are happening during the phases of Jesus' return that are still not visible to the world. Context, my favorite word. Context is such an important element in figuring these things out. So, Jonathan, let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4.16, but moving forward as we go. Well, after the voice of the archangel, the next item of this verse is with the trumpet of God. Okay, so with the trumpet of God. Ancient Israel had a special sounding of a trumpet every 50th year that signaled a year of rejoicing in the returning of those things which had been lost. Let's look at this. This is amazing and it's fascinating. Le Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 to 10. And this is from the King James Version. Then shall thou cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound, in the day of atonement throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land until all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and ye shall return every man unto his possession, and you shall return every man unto his family. Well, this word for trumpet in Hebrew is shofar, and we see um, that today as a curved ram's horn still in use in significant times in Israel. And now in context of Leviticus 25, Israel had a Sabbath rest for the land every seven years. For six years, they'd raise crops, but in the seventh year, it would have a rest to be restored for future crops. And some in modern Israel still do this today. Now, after seven of these cycles, or 49 years, the following 50th year was the Jubilee. 
This was a time of liberty and restoration. Hired servants are released, prisoners set free, sold inheritance reverted back to the inheritor. Anything that grew naturally in the fields was made available to everyone for free, recognizing that the land was God's. It was basically a giant reset button of forgiveness and redemption. And it all started with the sound of the shofar, the trumpet. So the idea of this jubilee was to put everything bad back into God's original setup. He had the land divided a certain way by the tribes, and that's the way he wanted it to stay. So all of the circumstances were undone and things were put back to the way they were supposed to be. So when, when this trumpet sounded, it, 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 it's the signal of the beginning of this year of Jubilee. And it's important to recognize that the sounding of the trumpet was not for the entire year. You didn't have that shofar sounding for 365 days, but only to begin it. All that happened in that year of Jubilee happened under the sounding of the trumpet. Because of the sounding of the trumpet, that started a process. This is an important picture, as we will see in a moment. There's a powerful picture to the trumpet sounding for the dead to be raised, for this is the beginning of the restoration of what was once lost. The restoration of what was once lost. That's what the Jubilee was. Now, with that in mind, let's look at Acts 3, 19-21. And this is from the New Living Translation. Now repent of your sins and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah, for he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Well, the Jubilee was all about restoring everything to how they were originally supposed to be. I read, he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things. Think about this. When Paul wrote Acts, he taught us the restoration couldn't start until Jesus returned. So that's how we know what that trumpet in 1 Thessalonians 4 does. You know, there's a lot of trumpets in the Bible, but this one, just like Israel's Jubilee year, signifies something new is starting. Restoration for the whole world, beginning with the church, the faithful followers of Jesus. Now, in part one, I mentioned three common scriptures cited by those who believe in a rapture. And we've been talking about that first one, 1 Thessalonians 4. But if I remember right, there's a trumpet in the second scripture we talked about, 1 Corinthians 15.52, about being changed in the twinkling of an eye. Is this the same trumpet? All right. Well, this is the heavenly resurrection that you're referring to. And we're going to read that verse in a moment. And therefore... It's a heavenly trumpet. I want to make that clear because we want to understand where it's quote-unquote heard, all right? God's kingdom on earth begins to be established when the true church has its change with the resurrection of the true church, as is mentioned in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Thessalonians. So yes, same trumpet. Let's look at this, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So you've got this sense of this last trumpet, 
And it's interesting, it's the last trumpet, but it's a big trumpet. Just like the Jubilee was like different than everything else, this is different than everything else. Now, it talks about at the last trumpet, and that's what many translations say, at the last trumpet. However, there's a subtle translation issue here that we want to really, really understand. So let's look at one of those verses. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 52 from the Rotherham translation this time, Jonathan, because there's a subtle difference. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, during the last trumpet, for it shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So during or in the last trumpet indicates that this will happen as a result of the proclamation of that trumpet. In other words, you have the proclamation, open up the door, begin the process. During the trumpet means during the process that it started. This implies a period of time rather than a moment in time. As opposed to the rapture teaching that says all of this happens instantaneously. Yeah, there's a big difference between those two. So this trumpet is being shown to be a spiritual symbol that the times of restoration are beginning just like the way the Jubilee began for Old Testament Israel. Did you notice how this is the last trumpet? If you've heard Handel's Messiah, you'll recognize this. The last trumpet is the seventh trumpet of Revelation 11.15 that pronounces, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The trumpet is obviously symbolic because no one ever heard the previous six. You know, you've got to look at this and say, okay, well, who hears this trumpet? It's only those to whom it, it directly affects. We need to understand that like the, the shout or the command, Everybody doesn't hear that because it's focused on what it's doing. This trumpet, this sounding that restitution is starting is, a, is, is in the spiritual realm first. It's not heard everywhere because people don't recognize it. So we need to keep that in its order. The third scripture we mentioned in part one cited by those who believe in a rapture was uh, Matthew 24, 36 to 41. This is the famous one about two men in the field. One is taken, one is left. There's two women grinding at the mill. One is taken, one is left. And curiously, the context of Matthew 24 also has a trumpet. (laughs) It's mentioned of this trumpet in Matthew 24 is in the midst of a very symbolic set of circumstances. What we're going to see is a dramatic upheaval in the sun, the literal sun. Now, it's not literal, it's a symbolic sun, and that means the, the purity of the gospel. There's, there, the, it's going to be, as Jonathan's going to read, it's going to be darkened. It, the gospel's going to lose some of its strength. It's going to be corrupted. The, and then it talks about the moon that represents the Mosaic law. You're not going to see those things for what they are actually supposed to be. As the moon is a reflection of the light of the sun, so the law was the shadow or reflection beforehand of the gospel matthew 24 29 through 31 but immediately after the tribulation of those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens symbolically the false religious powers will be shaken in other words this is a dark time when truth is obscured this is important to understand That's what Jesus is describing at the time of his return. 
you've got truth, you've got the true purity of the gospel, also all being obscured. It's an environment of Christian doctrinal error. We want to understand that because this comes into play later on in in the verses in Matthew 24, and we're going to get to them uh, a little bit later in this podcast. So in the next verse, it talks about clouds. We're going to examine clouds in part three, but let's put the verse there so we can have the context. We're in Matthew 24, uh, verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. We're not getting into that yet. So part three, we're going to unfold that because it comes a little bit later in the Thessalonians verses. So the next verse in Matthew 24 is different than our Thessalonian verses. We see it as an earthly work, what's happening in Matthew 24 that we're about to read, that the true church does does in conjunction with the return of Jesus and the clouds of trouble of of the times. So again, Matthew 24, this is the return of Jesus. It's context. We're trying to make it understandable because the First Thessalonian scriptures with the rapture have everything to do with the same time frame, but not necessarily the same events. Matthew 24, 31. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, looking at that, without getting into a big explanation, I'm going to apologize for not a big, giving a big explanation, but we need to understand this is something that is not happening in the heavenlies. It's not happening in the spirit realm. It's happening here. It's the gathering out of the true church from all of these erroneous places. Keep that in mind because we're going to come back to this context a little bit later. So, Jonathan, what we have here is a sense of this trumpet this trumpet, this jubilee, this changing, there's something big, restoration, the big restoration of Israel that was pictured every 50 years comes to this great fruition in that scripture you read in Acts 3, 19 to 21. So when we look at these verses in relation to that trumpet that is in 1 Thessalonians 4, what's our rapture reassessment? Similar to the command and the voice of the archangel in this verse, This trumpet also carries a highly spiritual significance. Its heavenly sounding shows us that the times of restitution are clearly underway and that the time for Satan's rule is going to rapidly wind down. Once again, we see that by transforming this spiritual marker into a worldly action, the rapture teaching changes the whole meaning of Paul's teaching and Thessalonians. So we've just looked at this one piece, and we need to see it as it is, where it's meant to be, and it's not the earthly sounding of an earthly trumpet. This trumpet is such an important symbol, and it's so easily misunderstood. What a blessing. We have scriptural context as our guide. We have the symbols in order, but what about the miraculous raising of the faithful? Is this literal, and is it instantaneous? All right, now we're getting into it. As we continue with the last phase of verse 16, we need to clearly connect all the pieces. Jesus returns in stealth mode. While in this mode, he issues a spiritual command for the dead in Christ to be raised. And then, with the voice of the archangel in the spirit realm, works out the beginning stages of Israel's regathering. 
Both of these actions show the trumpet of jubilee is sounding in the spirit realm as well, and that the times of restitution are in fact beginning. Exactly how does this raising of the dead in Christ happen? Do the Christians who died in the 2,000 years before all like rise in an instant? Like, how does it work? That's a really good question. And I'm going to tell you the answer is we know some, but we don't know all. So let's look at this. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and, and see where we're going to focus in. Well, after the trumpet, our focus is now, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay. This verse does not give us a time frame here. It does not say immediately. It does not say that they are, quote, caught up, unquote. What it does say is that they have the privilege of being the first to meet the Lord Jesus. So, we're not sure about some things here, so let's look at what do we know for sure. Three points we want to touch on. First, these are in the first group to be raised from the dead. We can say they are the first of the first fruits. And Jonathan, you mentioned we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23. Well, here we are. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his presence, parousia. So we've got three groups here, Christ, the firstfruits, and then those who are Christ at his coming. So Christ was resurrected first, obviously. Next comes the first fruits, meaning the church, the faithful followers of Jesus. And we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 and 15, that all are asleep in death awaiting Jesus's return and they get resurrected to heaven in two parts. Yeah. And after the secret return of Jesus, the apostles and faithful saints that were asleep in death were raised first. After that, faithful followers one by one were raised immediately after they died in a twinkling of an eye. Okay, so we've got that process. Christ, the first fruits, that includes the dead in Christ will rise first. It's not, that's not all of it, but that, that they are the beginning. We know that for sure. Now, the second thing we know is that this does not have to be an instantaneous thing because it doesn't tell us, meaning, it doesn't, meaning that every one of them raises in the exact same moment. We want to understand and, and give respect to the thought of the process of Jesus' return. We don't know how fast this is because the scripture doesn't tell us. But again, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty two as a reminder. And this is from the Rotherham Version. During the last trumpet, for it shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. That doesn't mean just for the few seconds that trumpet is actually blowing. It means during the time the sounding of the trumpet began. That's the process of God setting up his kingdom and this restitution of all things. Right. So it, we don't have a very specific, clear-cut time frame. Could it be instantaneous? Yeah, it could be. Could it take longer? Yeah, it could. Does it really matter? <laughs> you know, for us, it really doesn't. What matters is it happened. That's what it matters. It happened. We need to see it that way. So we don't know if it's in instantaneous or not. The third thing is we know that this is a picture of miraculous power, miraculous power that comes from God and works through Jesus. Remember Jesus using the voice of the archangel, the voice of the authority of God? Let's look at an example of that from Jesus when he walked the earth. And this is an example you're all familiar with, with the raising of the dead, uh, raising of Lazarus, John 11, verses 43 and 44. 
When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You know, when I hear that verse, Lazarus come forth, it, it, I, I, get, I get goosebumps every single time because you have this command to him who had been dead for days, miraculously through the power of God's Spirit, brought back to life. And I kind of imagine, now this is Rick's imagination, let's be clear, that, that is what happens as he calls those sleeping uh, faithful Christians, I think, personal opinion, just a personal opinion, because we don't know, but I think one by one come forth. I, it just, to me, it's a, it's a beautiful picture of the love of God through Christ, the power of the ransom, and the command, the command to come out of death into what is divine, eternal life in this case. So you've got what you called the first of the first fruits, those that had been dead and who were raised. Um, but then you've got this in First Thessalonians 4, you've got Christians who are alive at this event. And the question is, are their human lives instantly ended once these others have been raised? Do they die? Are they still alive? What happens? Well, and this is, this is one of the crux matters of the rapture teaching. Is this all in an instant? Does everybody die all at once once this starts? That's a big question. And to answer that question, we, and I know you're going to say, come on, Rick, speed it up. But we need to be methodical. <laughs> we need to go slowly. We need to understand this. So let's read 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Okay, finally, we get to the heart of these scriptures. All right, let me recap the traditional rapture teaching. Either Christ officially or unofficially returns and does two things. He instantly resurrects all of those faithful Christians who had died. And in the next instant, Jesus literally snatches up all the faithful living Christians into the air. They go away for what's typically thought to be a seven-year period of time. They get that from uh, some prophecies in Daniel that are, I think, misinterpreted. Um, is this what this scripture is describing, this snatching in the air? What is it? Okay, what is it? That's the big question. And Julie, I'm going to ask you to be patient with me because uh -oh. to answer the question, what we want to do is focus on one word, okay. just one word to get started because when we understand the impact of this one simple word, it really is going to help us answer that question. We're going to focus on the word then. Now, then is the very first word in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive. Jonathan, what about this word then? This word is Strong's Exhaustive Concordance number 1899, meaning thereafter or afterwards. Thereafter or afterwards. So, what does that mean? All right, big deal, Rick. <laughs> let's let's think this through. That's, I was going to say that, but I thought nope. Yeah, no, but <laughs> I'll that's, give you a little attitude. That's right, little attitude. This word, especially in the Apostle Paul's writings, does not usually have an immediacy attached to it. So, when we think of the word "then," we can think of it in a few different applications. This particular word, especially in Paul's writings, does not have this really quick connection. Let's give a couple of examples. First uh, Thessalonians 15, verses 4 through 6. And that's 1 Corinthians 15, oh, I'm sorry. 4 through 6. I knew that. 
<laughs> and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, 1899, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of them whom remained until now, but some have fallen asleep. Now, the Greek word translated into English as after that is the same word for then, Strong's 1899. After that or then, he appeared to more than 500 brethren, meaning there was some time in between. It didn't happen instantaneously. That's a big deal. That's a very big deal. It didn't happen in the next moment, in the next hour, in the next day. There was a period of time. Go ahead. Here's another example of the same word, number 1899. The Apostle Paul says instead of going to Jerusalem, he went to Arabia. Galatians 1, 17 and 18. And I went away to Arabia, and I returned once more to Damascus. Then, here's Strong's 1899, Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. So then was three years later. Well, that's not instantaneous because that would have been, I think there's a different Greek word for that, right? Right. Yeah, that's Strong's number 5119, meaning at that time or simultaneously. This always is translated into English as then. Okay, so let me just give a quick example. So we've got the English word then. Um, I wrote an email. Then I wrote a second one. That's after that, next, afterwards. Some time passed in between. That's like 1899, Strong's 1899, versus I was living in the United States then, meaning at that time, the time in question. That would be Strong's number, what did you say, 5119. Correct. All right, we've got two thens. What do yes. you got, Rick? Well, we've got two then. <laughs> well, let's look at an example of the at that time. And the reason we're taking time on this, folks, is when you understand that this word then in First Thessalonians, it has a meaning of afterwards. It's not connected in a link of time. It's just saying you have one point and at some point another point versus something that is connected to the previous event with some kind of immediacy. So let's look at the immediacy then, the one that happens right after. Two examples. First, when Jesus uh, uh, is revealed, the true church will then, at that time, be revealed along with him. It's what it says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 to 4. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, Strong says, to render apparent, then, at that time, you also will be revealed to render apparent with him in glory. So you see, then here ties those two things intrinsically together. When Christ is revealed, then, at that time, now this one is simultaneously, you will be revealed. There is a direct connection in terms of timing here. This is important in terms of the event and in terms of time. There's a direct convention versus afterwards. It's like we had a snowstorm, and afterwards, the snow melted. Well, that could be a week later. It could be a day later. If you're in Florida, it could be an hour later. <laughs> but, you know, the point is this then has that absolute connection, that needed connection. Let's, let's look at another, at another example. Well, in this verse, first of all, this verse verifies the stages of Jesus' return because it talks about being rendered apparent. 
And remember, we talked about those three stages, three phases earlier in the podcast. His return begins in that stealth-like manner, and it goes all the way up to you've got this full disclosure where everybody knows everything that's going on. That's what Colossians was talking about. Let's use another example of the word then that connects a timing. It connects an event very directly. The glory of Jesus' return is directly associated with individual judgment upon humanity. We know that because it says so in Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then, at that time, repay every man according to his deeds. So you've got the connection. This happens and then that happens. There's a directness. The other word is afterwards, sometime after. And in one of Paul's examples, it was three years later. There's another, another verse, I think it's, it's 15 years later or 12 years later. The point is, that's not what is being described. It's not that direct connection. So, Julie, your original question, it, does it happen instantaneously? The word then that the apostle himself uses says no. It's sometime afterwards. There's not that, that absolute positive direct link. So we can now easily see how verse 17, the, this, the phrase in verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, is not showing an immediate time connection, because it's the wrong word to show that, but rather it's showing a specific order of events. And isn't that been the theme of this whole discussion, is the order and unfolding of events as the unfolding of Jesus' return reveals itself. We need to put these things in order. So Julie, we spent a lot of time talking about that one word. Does that make some sense? It does. It does. So now we can see that they are going to be separate events, not not set together, is your point. Exactly. Okay. And the reason that's the point is because that's the Apostle Paul's point by the words that he used to describe the event. So Jonathan, our rapture reassessment, what do we have? In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul is systematically explaining a sequence of events and not a traumatic moment in time, as the rapture teaching implies. His explanation is not only reasonable, it is filled with hope as it looks forward to a spiritual uniting with our Lord Jesus. It puts a whole different feeling to what these scriptures are actually teaching. It is such a relief that God's plan does not bring the instant chaos and trauma that many seem to believe. If this is not a moment in time, then what does being caught up together with them in the clouds mean? You're always asking more questions. This is a very, very relevant question. Once again, let's look at these verses and try and read them, not with a rapture teaching bias, but with a scripturally and contextually sound understanding. By building this reasoning step by step, we see a logic unfold that is in exact harmony with what the rest of the scriptures reveal about the stages of Jesus' return. And folks, this is a big point. The scriptures give us a sense of this unfolding of Jesus' return. Everything that's described here fits exactly into that sense, and we need to just see the incredible harmony there. So Jonathan, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then, after that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. All right, so in many Christian circles, the, quote, we who are alive and remain will be caught up phrase gets confused with other verses that are teaching different things, but may sound the same to to some as they look to interpret Scripture. You're exactly right. So if we can get back to that, our Lord's great prophecy when he returns, remember Matthew 24, 38 to 42, where they have two men in the field, two women grinding at the mill. How will one be taken and one be left? Is that kind of that same thing where we're alive and we get caught up, one's taken away? Well, it comes down to, guess what? The words. It comes down to the words and the context and the overall picture of what Jesus is teaching. So let's go to those verses. And remember, we were talking about Matthew 24 earlier, just a few verses before this, the sun being darkened and the moon losing its light and all of those things. And we put that in some context. That's going to become relevant in a moment. Matthew 24, Jonathan, let's go to verses 38 to 42. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the presence of the Son of Man be. Then, at that time, there will be two men in a field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So I noticed two things. One, Jonathan, when you said then, that's Strong's 5119, that's that connected event, the time in question, so it's the same time. But I noticed that we're not told where these people are taken to. You know, you said they're taken. Are they taken to heaven? Is this the rapture? No. Uh, one reason is because then is a connected event and not afterwards. Okay, right, because the other one had the other then. Okay. Let's take a look at this. The, this then, like you said, Jonathan, it's that direct at that time sense of the word. So let's understand this word taken. Let's understand what this word taken here means because it's, it has a very different meaning than the word for caught up in First Thessalonians. So Jonathan, let's define taken in the Matthew scriptures, in Matthew 24. And this word taken is Strong's number 3880, and it means to receive near, that is associate with oneself. Okay, you've got the receive near to associate with oneself. The word for caught up in the First Thessalonian Scripture means to seize, to carry off by force. So it gives a very different description, a very, very different description. We're going to soon discuss this being caught up uh, in, in great detail. That will come in part three, but we need to understand that this word taken is very, very, very different from that. So let's look at two examples of this word taken that is in Matthew 24. And again, that taken, like you said, to receive near, to associate with oneself. First is Matthew 120. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So you had that sense, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. There's no, there's no snatching away. There's the having her join you, having being joined to her. Let's look at Mark four, uh, 14, 33 and 34. And he took 
with him Peter and James and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And all right, I think I'm getting this now. So the first Thessalonians 4 means to be caught up or snatched up by force. But here in Matthew 24, the people described are taken, which means receive near, like I'm going to take you with me. So you're saying these aren't synonymous and interchangeable words. Right. Very, very different. Now you can, somebody can argue, well, you know, you can be taken and still snatched up. Sure. But let's finish the context. Let's put all of this in order because, you know, Julie, you had asked the question before, well, where are they taken to? So let, we've got we've to get down to this. The, the next point, the teaching in Matthew 24 has nothing to do, let me repeat that, nothing to do with being snatched up to heaven. How do we know? Well, we know because Jesus tells us emphatically himself that. So let's look at Luke's account of this teaching. So remember, in the Gospels, you have four Gospels. Some pieces of Jesus' teaching are in one Gospel and another. Sometimes there's a piece here and a piece there in one or the other Gospels. It's important to put them together to get the whole picture. So we're going to look at Luke 17, 34 to 37 to get a bigger perspective of this. And this is from the Young's Literal Translation. I say to you, in that night there shall be two men on one couch. The one shall be taken and the other shall be left. All right, that's what we read before. It's a simple thing. One be taken to be received near. Remember, that's the, the, the definition. Uh, this verse now, the verse that you just read, is not in Matthew, but it does signify the same process. There are two, in this case, at rest and comfortable, and what Jesus previously described in Matthew as an environment of Christian doctrinal error. And one is removed from that. Remember, the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the gospel having that corruption not being seen as what it was. One is taken, one is removed from that environment. Where are they taken? Hang on. Let's go to verse 35. Two women shall be grinding at the same place together. The one shall be taken and the other shall be left. So you look at grinding at the mill. Now, what's a mill? A mill is a place where food is prepared. And so when we look at this symbolically, because all of this is symbolic language from Jesus talking about his return, this symbolizes any kind of theological school or schooling and ministry that supports the, 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 the doctrinal errors when the sun is being darkened, when the, when the truth is being obscured. And it says one is taken, one is removed to be associated with oneself. Where are they taken? Hang on, let's go to the next verse, verse 36. Two men shall be in a field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Again, symbolic language. Jesus emphatically has told us in other places that the field often represents the world. So if there are two in the field, one's taken, the other left. To be in the field, being in the world outside of Christian culture, be it erroneous or pure, you're outside of that Christian culture. These verses are showing us that the calling out of all walks of life to be a true Christian, with the emphasis on calling out of any corrupted systems of Christianity. One's taken, the other's left. Where are they taken to? Where do they go? Matthew doesn't seem to address that, but Luke does. Luke uh, chapter 17, verse 37. And they answering say to him, Where, sir? And he said to them, where the body is, there will the eagles be gathered together. 
So they're taken to food and not heaven, like metaphorical food of truth? Sounds like a pretty good idea, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But eagles don't usually eat dead food, do they? Why are there eagles? Bald eagles have a reputation for being impressive predators. They often scavenge dead animal matter or steal from other predators. Eagles soar high, a spiritual picture, great eyesight. Vultures fly low, a picture of earthly focus. So when it says, talks about where the, the apostle is saying, well, where are they taken? Where are they taken? Because isn't that what everybody wants to know? Where are they taken? And, 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 and our Christian friends who believe in the rapture says, well, they're taken to heaven. They're taken to heaven because they use this as a proof. But Jesus himself in Luke says, that's not where they're taken. Where they're taken is to where the food is. What food? Well, if the previous context was all about Christian corruption and spiritual corruption, and they're taken out of that, they're brought to where the food is, doesn't that give you a sense of they're brought to something actually nourishing, actually with that that purity that Jesus has been talking about? Jesus is teaching in these verses in Matthew 24 that there's a sifting work that happens here at earth, on earth, at the time of his return. The point is being in the right place in regard to biblical truth. It's not about going to heaven. It's about being taken out of error and being brought to, like you said, Julie, spiritual food, something important. Let's look at John 4, 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Worship the Father in spirit and and in whatever you think. No, that's not what it said. In spirit and what a bunch of people teach. No, that's not what it said. It's in spirit and in truth. We have to be overly zealous, if you will, to want to know the truth of Scripture. Jesus tells us that several times. Uh, The apostle teaches us that several times. This is an important point. Just, just one more scripture on this, John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And Rick, this made me think of Revelation 18, 4. Come out of her, my people, that you will not participate in her sins. This is advising true Christians to leave the false Christian systems which are teaching erroneous doctrines, such as the rapture. We want to be careful to be focused in on the truth of Scripture. Folks, that's why we take such pains at explaining these things in such detail, because we want to be speaking according to what the Bible is teaching, not speaking according to what we're comfortable with. In spirit and in truth, Jesus prays for his followers to be sanctified in truth. God's Word, the Bible, is truth. So we're seeing that this being, this, this being caught up and being taken are two very, very, very different things. The Matthew 24 has nothing to do with rapture-like thinking. So we've spent a lot of time telling you what it's not saying, and in part three we're going to have to get to what it is saying, what being caught up really means. That's coming in, in our next part. But Jonathan, right now let's wrap this up, our rapture reassessment. It should be clear that 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 are verses full of symbols and spiritual activity that is not able to be witnessed on earth. 
The trumpet sounds and the kingdom work of earthly restitution begins in the spirit realm first. We see that those true followers of Jesus who slept in death over the last 2,000 years are the first to receive a new life. Those disciples who are alive at that time will each be changed in due time. All of this adds up to scriptural truth and not hysterical chaos and trauma. This is such an important thing to understand. We need to keep these things in very, very clear and specific perspective. So, Jonathan, you just read all that. Let me just give you a little recap. Let's restate what the pieces of this 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 mean. Rick, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Descends from heaven with a spiritual command. That spiritual command is in a spiritual realm because it is the calling out of death of all the faithful Christians throughout the last 2,000 years that have been waiting for their call, and that command is for them to come forth. With the voice of the archangel. The voice of the archangel is the voice of God's authority. We can see in Daniel chapter 12, God's authority, that voice is very specifically focused in, not just, but primarily on Israel and its reestablishment, which had been prophesied many times, and now we have seen it come to fruition, and many people don't even look at it and realize it. And who is the archangel? The archangel is Jesus. He is the voice of God's authority. Unequivocally, there is no other being that could possibly fulfill that role. And with the trumpet of God. So the trumpet of God. Remember the jubilee trumpet in or yes. the, the, the shofar in, in, in the Old Testament every 50th year. Things were restored. It was a big restoration. It was a massive changing of things putting things back to the way God set them up. The times of restitution are a massive restoration, putting things back to the way God set them up. It is the grand jubilee. That's what that trumpet, that shofar, is sounding. And again, it's in the spiritual realm. We don't see it yet, but wait, you will see its results. And the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ, those who had been faithful unto death, throughout all of the time since Jesus' time until now, until the return of Jesus, they are the first ones to be the first of the first fruits to be part of this grand, grand time, this grand jubilee, this grand restoration, this restitution of all things. This is exciting. There's no chaos here. This is exciting as it unfolds in the heavenlies. Then we are who are alive and remain will be caught up while we describe what that's not, not what it is. So let's push that to part three, along with the clouds. And finally, we get to meet the Lord in the air and understand what that all means. So, folks, uh, again, there's so much to this, and the results of all of this are purely inspiring. What we've looked at today and in part one are the functioning of the scriptures in 1 Thessalonians 4 and how you set the stage for being caught up with them in the clouds. In part three, we're going to delve right into that and understand what the Apostle Paul really meant. And folks, don't want to miss that because the inspiration that comes from that is truly remarkable. Think about it. We love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, different subject, Am I Listening to the Angel? Good tidings of great joy. Talk to you next week.